Hello, and welcome to Always Responding, a podcast for all first responders. I'm your host, KB. Before we get started, I'd like to take this moment and just say how precious life can be. Our family, my wife's family, was touched by tragedy this week. One of her very close relatives was in a horrific accident. We are all heartbroken and devastated by the news. I would like to dedicate this episode of Always Responding to Caitlin. We love you, sweetheart. God bless. Thank you. As I mentioned during my first episode, I will begin each podcast with the reading of any law enforcement officer's names who were killed in the line of duty between my last podcast and the current one. I will also read the names of any firefighters who may have lost their lives during this time frame as well. During my very first podcast last week, I read the names of every law enforcement officer and every firefighter who has paid the ultimate sacrifice so far this year. And as of today, it looks like law enforcement has lost two more officers in a line of duty, and FD has also lost a firefighter as well. I will now read the names of the police officers who have lost their lives in the line of duty. This information can be located on the Officer Down Memorial Page website. The first officer is Deputy Nicholas Weist from Knox County Sheriff's Office. End of watch, April 29th, vehicular assault. Deputy Sheriff Nick Weist was struck and killed by a vehicle as he deployed spike strips during a vehicle pursuit of an armed subject. Officers from the Galesburg Police Department had responded to a call involving an armed subject at a local gas station at about 8 a.m. The man fled in a vehicle and the Galesburg officers initiated a pursuit. Deputy Weist was deploying spike strips on U.S. Route 150 at North 150th Avenue in Henry County when the vehicle struck him. Deputy Weist had served with the Knox County Sheriff's Office for four years and previously served with the Mercer County Sheriff's Department and Aldito Police Department. He is survived by his wife, two children, mother, father, and sister. He was 34 years old, did 10 years of service, badge number 936. The second officer is Corporal Nick Tullier from the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office. End of watch, May 5th, gunfire. Corporal Nick Tullier succumbed to injuries sustained six years earlier when he was ambushed by a subject outside a convenience store at 9611 Airline Highway shortly before 9 a.m. Officers had received reports of a subject walking along the roadway carrying a rifle. As responding officers arrived in the area, they were ambushed by the subject. Corporal Tullier was critically wounded. Deputy Sheriff Brad Garofola of the East Baton Rouge Parish Office, Corporal Montrell Jackson, and Police Officer Matthew Gerald, both of the Baton Rouge Police Department, were shot and killed. Two other officers were wounded. He is survived by his parents, his two sons, two brothers, and five nephews. He was 46 years old. Let's now pay tribute to our fallen brother from the firefighter side of the family. This information can be located on the U.S. Administration website. He was firefighter John D. Forbush of Gassaway, West Virginia. End of watch, May 1st, 
On Sunday, May 1st, firefighter John Dean Forbush responded to the scene of a vehicle crash at the Elk River in Braxton County, West Virginia. While attempting to rescue a mother and daughter after their SUV was driven into the water, he was caught in the current and drowned. Always Responding will continue to pay tribute each and every episode to all the brave men and women who pay the ultimate sacrifice so that they are never forgotten. Another important part of this podcast is bringing attention to the rising number of suicides in the first responders community. So far this year alone, we have had 45 law enforcement officers commit suicide, seven from the fire department and one from corrections. We are only in April. This is a topic we all need to be discussing and on a regular basis. I know my next guest will be sharing a very personal story that he went through involving someone very close to him that touches on this subject. I am very honored and blessed he is able to join me here today to touch on that subject as well as several others. I have known Don for over 30 years. We served in the Navy together in San Diego and have been family ever since. Don has been a firefighter EMT for 27 years and a registered nurse at a level one trauma center in the Midwest for 23 years. He also served as a death scene investigator for a major Midwest city medical examiner's office. He has been a first responder for nearly his entire adult life. I am truly excited to welcome to Always Responding, my friend and true expert in the field, Don. Welcome to the show, Don. Thanks for having me, KB. It's truly an honor and a privilege to be here today. So Don, at Always Responding, I believe it's it's so important to speak with veteran or first responders such as yourself to gather as much information as possible on how the job has affected you over the years. Now, like I said in your intro, you have been working as a first responder for 27 years, and that's a, a very long time in this field. Yes, it's been a long time. And uh, I, I've seen many, many things and uh, seen many, seen other struggles that people go through. And uh, so I'm just happy to try and help anybody out that I can. I'm no super person. I'm just a common person trying to get through life and uh, come home to my family and try and be in the soundest mental health mind that I can be. No, I understand that. And that's, I think that's what a lot of people that aren't in this field kind of have a hard time understanding that we're just like everybody else. We have families, we have people we come to that love us and, and want us coming home every single night. You know, that's what we strive for, just to make it home to our families. So one of my first questions I'd, I'd like for you to, to answer or to look into, Don, is from the beginning of your career, 27 years ago to now, how do you think the job has changed you physically, mentally, emotionally from that first time when you started to now? Sure. Well, I mean, physically, it's beaten me up. <laughs> I still need like two or three surgeries. And uh, as I near the end of my career here, it's uh, tougher to get up and, and do things. But uh, from an emotional perspective uh, and a mental health perspective, I, I think it's changed me also. You know, and I, I don't say this proudly, but I used to be kind of old school, um, you know, having been in the, the business for 27 years here and been around guys who are even older school than I. And you know, when, when people would, you know, do dumb things and we'd have to respond to them, you're kind of like, well, you know, like overdoses and people that are addicted and that kind of stuff. It's like, well, if you do dumb things, dumb, bad things are going to happen to you. But as I progressed, uh, especially in the area of like mental health and the areas of addiction, learning how much addiction was in my family. And actually, as I've grown through these 27 years, come to try and be a little more understanding of it because it could be your neighbor's kid. They could have been brought up in totally the right way. And now all of a sudden they've died of an overdose. Speaking with people that are actually addicts, I like to talk to my patients, you know, and see what I can try and get inside their heads and see what they're feeling uh, since I don't really understand it. And really have, I, I feel I've become more 
empathetic towards people that are suffering from things that I, back in the day, early in my career, would have just thought, well, you know, you kind of get what you get kind of thing. So that's probably the biggest takeaway that I've seen in a change in me. You know, and I, I totally agree, Don. I mean, I, I can remember when I first started. I mean, I, I started a little bit older. I was in my mid-30s when I started in the police force. And it's amazing as you get older in your career and dealing with individuals is your empathy for them changes as well, especially as you get older and dealing with individuals. You, you find yourself empathizing with them more and having a, a better understanding of what they're going through. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with that um, in, in understanding and being able to deal with their problems more. Yeah, it, I think it helps me, you know, in the few moments that I'm with them, uh, provide them with better care now and just having a better insight in it as I've matured and learned more about these things. And that's one of the things as a, as a training officer when I was working uh, as an FTO that I would try to tell the new officers coming on, you know, treat the people that you're dealing with like you'd want your family treated. Yeah, 100%. I mean, in the city that I'm in, it's a pretty large city, some pretty rough areas. And there's a lot of the paramedics that respond with us uh, in the ALS role. Uh, that are really old and crusty and just, you know, they're, they're there because they can't do anything else and they've been in their job for 30 years and they don't treat patients very well and it's it's really just sad to see. You know, my whole thing is when I speak to other people and mentor young people is, you know, it doesn't matter what your personal views are. You have to separate your personal views from your professional views and I think we've lost that in today's society is separating pro professionalism from personalism. You know, when, you're, when you turn that switch on, you walk into work, whether it's in my nursing role, uh, whether it's in my uh, EMS role or fire role, you know, you're there to help people regardless of what they've done. Some people are harder to help than others, but you still, as you said, treat them just like their family. That's give them the best chance and, you know, whatever happens, happens after that. But at least your interaction with them was as positive as could be. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, my next one would be, do you think, and I think you kind of nailed it in your answer, but do you think your stress level is different now than it was when you first began? I would say my on-the-job stress level is probably, it's probably gotten a little bit worse with COVID and all that because everybody's so much shorter and makes it more difficult to help them uh, during this last two years. But up until that point, I think my stress level had pretty much gone down. My personal life, though, I mean, talk about bringing it home with you and that kind of stuff, kind of tend to do that a little bit. And with the way that the world is and, you know, my own political views and all that kind of stuff in my personal life, I think my stress levels have gotten high and I think sometimes I can carry over into my job. So kind of a backward way of looking at things, but that's kind of been my experience. And, you know, and you, you kind of rolled into one of my um, topics and beliefs that I have here for always responding is and my motto when I work is leaving work at work. And it's so difficult. It's so hard to do when you leave the station or you leave your job is to leave that at work and leave that stress there and come home and enjoy your home life. But like you said, you know, 27 years, that's a long time. And you're going to eventually bring that stuff home. It's just inevitable. It's going to happen. To be able to balance that and be able to manage that, it's so difficult to do. And I kind of uh, touched on it in my first episode. There really isn't a setup for us in our profession to teach us when we first hire on how to manage that, how to manage your stress. There's stuff that teaches us how to go out and do our jobs, whether you're a police officer, how to go out and do reports and interview people. And, you know, as a firefighter, to go out and put out fires or to handle a bad scene, an accident scene or things like that. But they don't really teach you away from that. How do you handle that mentally and emotionally and physically? You know what I'm saying, Don? Oh, absolutely. You know, I can tell you one thing that I, I think knowing you as well as I do, you are the epitome of somebody who doesn't bring it home. And you are different than most law enforcement uh, officials that are friends and family of mine and people that I know and work with. And I've always respected you for that because you don't bring it home with you or minimally. 
compared to other people that I know, you know, and it's, it's so difficult. I mean, I, I bring it home with me, you know, it's hard too when you're walking around and um, you're pretty well known within your community because you do a lot of uh, teaching and outreach to many different levels of people for different things. I've been a tempo instructor. I've, I've, I'm an EMS training officer for another fire department and I do things statewide as far as, you know, overdoses and such. And, you know, I'll be walking around and all of a sudden somebody go, hey, it's so-and-so, you know, how you doing, man? Because I, I, they don't really know my name, really, but they know me just from my speaking. And then my wife's like, do you ever get away from any of this? And it's like, well, <laughs> I try to, but if I stay in my home, I do. But God bless my wife. She's been very patient. And I've always respected you for the way that you've demonstrated not bringing things home with you, or at least to a minimum. Well, I appreciate that. It, it, it's very difficult. But like you said, you nailed it. It takes a strong foundation at home with a, a loving wife and the love and support of a family, then, you know, it's it's difficult to keep that work at work and be able to have that support at home to keep that stress level off of you. I've had that my whole career, so I'm truly blessed in that aspect of life. Absolutely. So I guess my, my next one would be for you with, you know, as much as stress as it, if you've had over the 27 years. And like you've mentioned, being in a small community and not really being able to escape that, it sounds like. What, what do you do to manage your stress? Well, um, working out is one of the things that I do. It's always been my stress relief. Kind of naturally a crabby guy. Uh, <laughs> most most no, people no. who know me peripherally when I'm out talking and doing my thing and all that know me as being kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. But I'm kind of introverted in, in my personal life and, you know, really am kind of crabby about most things. And so uh, what I do is I work out. And one of the things that my wife will go ahead and kind of bring me back to Jesus, so to speak, is um, you're getting pretty short about stuff here. You, uh, you've been working out. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, I've been injured or I don't have time. Or she says, well, you better find some time. So um, I do that. And then I do other things. I enjoy uh, looking for mushrooms. So it's right now it's mushroom season. So I'm going to go out in the woods by myself just to go ahead and look for mushrooms and whatever else I can find. Just enjoy the silence of the deep woods. I enjoy bow hunting. Not so much just to get the deer, but just to be out there with nature. And if I get a deer, great. Then I've got meat for a year. And if I don't, that's fine too. But basically just working out and getting out into nature have been just God sense. Well, you know, obviously we've known each other for over 30 years. I think of you as family, obviously. And it's very important that you do find that, that time away from work and that, and that time away from the stress that this job can put on you. Because stress, as you know, is one of the number one killers for people in our profession. And it's something that can sneak up on you and take a hold of you before you even know it. And it's one of the silent killers, as I say. So just make sure that you are taking care of yourself and you're you know, keeping an eye out on the silent clues that you are getting overstressed. So make sure you are going out hunting or going out working out and listen to your wife because she's very smart because wives are very smart and they know us. <laughs> yes, they are. So I guess one of my last questions on this subject would be, if you could give advice to someone just starting out in the career that you've chosen, what would that be? Yeah. So I entered this just really energetic, um, obviously wanting to do this and just really gung ho. And then you get on and you, you, you meet some of the old timers and, you know, who you can see that have been around a long time, not all of them, but some of them. And they're like, oh, they do the amount of work. All they do is bitch, that kind of stuff. I've always told my kids that if you want to do something, you pursue it and you find the person who's going to mentor you. Sometimes that person isn't always evident, but sometimes... You know, the only way you're going to find out is by asking. 
ask lots of questions. If somebody just says you ask too many questions, just go ahead and just do what you're told. You know, you should always do what you're told, but ask questions and find somebody who's actually going to take an interest and wants to see you grow and somebody that you respect. And sometimes that's a difficult thing. So you need to attach yourself to somebody who's going to go ahead and mentor you. And you may piss off a few people, but find that person who's really going to go ahead and has matches your kind of attitude, your energy level, and somebody who's already been through it and maybe learned some who's willing to share that with you. You know, that that goes for really any career, but especially for uh, someone getting uh, into the first responders field, because there are, like you said, there are so many uh, disgruntled older employees. But you know what? There, uh, There's also disgruntled new employees as well that are just getting onto the job for whatever reason. And unfortunately, there's some that get on for the wrong reason, for money, for whatever the case may be. So some really good advice yeah. there, Don. I really appreciate that. Um, we're going to kind of change gears a little bit because obviously one of the topics that I'm very passionate about here at Always Responding is suicide. Um, suicide being um, the number that are going up every single year is rising. And I want to try to do something the best I can here at Always Responding to try to keep those numbers down. And like I mentioned in the opening, they're already at 45 for law enforcement this year alone. And I think it was seven for FD. Now you and I have talked about your personal experience and how it's affected you. And I know you have graciously agreed to share your story and I really appreciate that. So I'm going to open it up now to you for uh, you to share your story with us, Don. Yeah, thank thanks so much for allowing me to help maybe if I can even help one other person who's struggling by this story. It's it's an emotional story and it does hit very, very close and it hits a nerve and all that kind of stuff. But uh, so my wife's younger brother, he's quite a bit younger than me, just a really funny kid, very musically talented, very, very smart individual. Him and his dad, you know, as he was getting, becoming a senior in high school, they wound up, he was a bigger kid and he decided he's going to challenge dad, like sometimes 18 year old kids like to do. Right. And, uh, so they kind of got into it and wound up that dad kicked him out of the house. Well, I had just gotten out of the Navy recently. I'm gotten married and I dated my wife for a while and they got married. And so we had some extra room in our house. I, I told him, we'll just call him, uh, we'll call him John. And, uh, it just said, Hey, you know, what do you think about John moving in with us? My wife said, that was a great idea. Uh, we laid down some ground rules as you do. He, he became basically like a son to me. He would ask me about stuff. We do stuff together. Just like, just like, you know, a, a father and a son would, but I had very young children at that time. And so, you know, they were fun too, but it was kind of fun to mentor him along. And he was started going to school, um, to, for law enforcement at the local community college. And so, you know, I told him, I said, dude, you don't want to be a cop. Because I had gotten on the fire service here after I got out of the military. I, I said, you don't want to be a cop. I said, you want to be a fireman. Because, you know, everybody wants to be a fireman, really. You know, even most cops do that I find on the scene want to try and handle the hose and that kind of stuff, you know. So, um, and he's like, well, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you just join the volunteer department here in town? I said, that, that's where I was on at that time. And I started out with. And so he joined and he got some experience and he got the fire bug, as we call it in the business. And he absolutely loved it. And so he changed and he started uh, getting schooling to get his fire science degree. And in the interim, um, he wanted to try and get a full-time firefighting job. Now, during that time, uh, if you didn't have any military experience, which he didn't, it was very difficult to get onto a career fire department, very competitive. He knew that it was going to be a challenge, but he decided to take this challenge on. We sat down, we did oral interviews, we did everything we could think of. Uh, and he finally landed a job on a career department in a neighboring state. And so he uh, got on that department. He overcame a lot of stuff personally, uh, as far as like heights wise, having to climb ladders. And I mean, like, you know, 
uh, a, a ladder just sitting swaying in the air, 100 and, 120 feet up in the air with nothing at the end of it, almost 90 degrees up having to climb. He, he went ahead and overcame all that kind of stuff and became a very, very good firefighter. Very excited. Uh, started a family, uh, married a gal from his home state. She relocated out there. He'd been on the department for a couple of years. Really well received in the department. Really well liked guy. Um, they went out on the side and would play music. Got a meet a little musical group together from some of the guys and played at some local gigs. Uh, did a little ghost hunters thing that actually they were on the verge before uh, he had his mishap of being accepted into TAPS, the, the ghost hunters group no. um, kind of chapter and all that kind of stuff. And uh, But what happened is in their department, they had it was a uh, fire ambulance service. And so they did have some paramedics that were firefighters, but the paramedics primarily drove the ambulance. And all the firefighters who were EMTs had to take their turn a couple of shifts a month to ride it to supplement. So they did medic. EMT and they supplemented with the firefighters and of course most of the firefighters didn't like it because we just like to fight fire so but he he wound up riding the sea with a paramedic and and uh, good friend he, he developed a great friendship a best friend and one of the paramedics that was on his apartment started enjoying EMS a little bit more just because he was working with his buddy and uh, guys a little bit older than him mentored him you know he'd been on a few years and him and his wife had their first kid and uh, about 14 years ago and this was the joy of his life. I mean, he absolutely adored this child. And so with this child, um, he started responding. And after a while, and I didn't find out this till later, but th this is a pretty common phenomenon uh, in, you know, police, fire, EMS kind of circles that once you've had your first kid or any kid and you start responding to pediatric emergencies, you start seeing their faces on your kid. Mm -hmm. Then you start bringing it home and then you start getting stressed about it. And so that what was happening to him. He On his ambulance rides, he later found out that he was stating that he was seeing his, his new baby boy's face on these kids mm. and uh, he was having a hard time with it. So he kind of reached out a little bit, you know, and his buddy, um, best friend, who I'm also best friends with now as a result of all this at the time was like, well, you know, just kind of suck it up. And, you know, a lot of us in the business, so are us old schoolers, we're never really taught to be emotionally involved. It's a weakness. It's this kind of stuff. So it's like, ah, just have a few beers. It'll be fine. You know, once you only ask your buddy, hey, you doing okay? You know, yeah, yeah, I'm doing fine. You sure? Yep, that's good enough for me. Let's go ahead and have a few beers and uh, blow off some steam and, you know, keep going and push through. And, you know, as much as I like to say that that works, maybe it works for some people, but our human mind is pretty well, we understand it pretty well. And having those thoughts stay in there and not go anywhere and not express them can fester. And then some people, if they're wired a certain way, can go ahead and cause them to have extreme stress, thoughts of suicide, and then just so much stress that they just, they can't deal with it. So about a year, oh, it was actually 11 months after his, his first son was born, his first child, they came and visited us. They came back to, to the home state where we live, his hometown. Uh, we saw him. Nothing seemed to be. He seemed like his funny old self. We sat and held his kid, you know, 11 months old, cooing. Starting, He was already walking at 10 months old, just like um, John was. He was an early walker. And so just enjoyed him. Nothing seemed to miss. I asked him, hey, things going okay? Going great. And then uh, it was a week later that we got a phone call. And uh, my wife answered the phone and she just started bawling. I knew something terrible had happened. I didn't know to who. And so found out that, uh, that, that John, uh, her, her brother, had wound up taking his own life uh, by suicide. And so 
come to find out is, you know, we spoke with co-workers and other people that knew him and his, and his uh, my sister-in-law, who was his, his wife, that he had been struggling with this, uh, with the pediatric thing, which is not uncommon in our, our circles. Didn't deal with it well. Um, his best friend didn't have the capability to try and help him out just because it's who he was. Not that he didn't love him or that he wasn't family, it's just he didn't have the tools to do that. And so he just turned to numbing himself by um, alcohol, more or less. And uh, they had quite a struggle for a while with this, I guess. And it, when uh, his wife came and talked to us, you know, she's pretty open about stuff and said he's been struggling. He's been going to AA. He's been doing really good. And so she had finally just decided to go ahead and uh, leave the house one day and leave his son in, in his in his care uh, because she, you know, he had demonstrated that he wasn't going to go ahead and use and that kind of stuff. And uh, she came home and saw that there was smoke coming from the house and freaked out and didn't realize that uh, John was lying on the couch, pretty much passed out uh, with his son in the high chair. And there was some stuff, burnt food in the uh, in the oven going. So no danger at this point, I mean, but she didn't know what was going on. She immediately ran in and didn't know that John was in an impaired state, grabbed her son, ran outside. John got awakened by this, was startled to see there was smoke in the house, being a firefighter automatically in an impaired state, thought that something bad was going on. He went out to his truck, uh, got a handgun they had in his glove compartment came back in the house and his wife said she heard the shot mm. and so um so his fellow firefighters still had to come and from his because he lived within his jurisdiction and come and take care of that so it was quite devastating a lot of people were like why does this happen you know i i, I know why it happened because he finally figured out in his mind that his problem in that moment had potentially in his mind thinking the house was really on fire had put hit the most precious thing in his life in jeopardy and in that moment of impairment reacted the way that he did. And so I think it's really hugely important for us to address this, not just because of my own experience, close experience, but I, I talked to a lot of people that don't really know how to communicate this. And a lot of people my age and from my era are just like, well, you know, suck it up, buttercup, you know, um, you know, just push through it. You'll push through it and be fine. And that's just not the way our psyche works. Some of us are better than others at it. I mean, I don't know that I've ever, I've, I can tell you I've never contemplated it, but I, I, it's a very high number of, of people in our profession that has even thought about it, like 50% or something like that have mm -hmm. thought about it but didn't act on it. I can say that I've been blessed for whatever reason that I haven't done that. I can tell you that in the middle of my career, though, looking back on it, um, I said I was a crabby guy. I was really crabby kind of in the middle of my career, and it affected my relationship. And looking back on it, the way that depression manifests in males is anger. And I don't know whether it was or it wasn't, but looking back on it now, I think that there's a good possibility that I just didn't deal with things very well, and I used anger. Luckily, I didn't use or anything like that, but a lot of people do, so huge problem out there we got to take care of each other we call this a brotherhood yeah. or a sisterhood you know but and in a lot of ways it is but in a lot of ways it isn't and i think to truly close that loop to make this a brotherhood we need to look out for each other and i don't think it's a good enough excuse anymore to say that well i just didn't know how to deal with him he pulled away and i figured he'd be fine because he told me he was fine you need to go ahead and, and and get into your your buddy's business your partner's business if they seem not to be acting right and really push them on this no, a hundred percent, Don. And first and foremost, I, I I really appreciate you sharing that story with us about John. I, I know how personal that was. Uh, you and I have talked about this, and I know how personal that was to you. So I really appreciate you sharing that on this episode with us and getting that out there. And uh, again, I'm very sorry for your loss and your wife's loss. 
I think it's very important, like you said, and, you know, we are supposed to be a brotherhood or a sisterhood, and uh, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast, and to at least get the stigma of not talking to our partners or our coworkers or, you know, even our family members about this, because it's been so many times that, you know, people are afraid to go out there and, and say something or I don't want to upset them or get them mad at me or they're not going to talk to me or they're going to, you know, turn away from me. But man, I'd rather that person be mad at me for the rest of my life and never talk to me again than not have that person in my life. Because what's the alternative? You know, if you don't talk to them and you and you feel that there's something wrong and you feel that something's not right and they, they go and, and hurt themselves or commit suicide, what's the alternative? You're never going to see them again anyway. You know, it's like, is yep. it worth it? So I, I really thank you. Um, and like I said, this is what this is all about is us all getting together and sharing our personal stories. So thank you, you know, and, and hopefully this reaches somebody. And if, if somebody's out there struggling, if somebody's out there thinking about harming themselves, or you see somebody that's out there harming them, that, that you think are harming themselves, or and you're afraid to reach out to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to make that connection and to, to at least talk to them, do something. So again, Don, I really appreciate you sharing that story. I know that you'd mentioned before when we talked that there's a kind of a mentor story that you had as well. If you want to share that, it'd be great. Yeah. Well, along those lines, you know, you, you kind of hopefully learn from past things that have hit you pretty closely emotionally. And so I just told myself that I was going to go ahead and from this moment on that if somebody I was working with, even if I didn't know them well, and they seem to be struggling with something, they seem to be acting differently after a scene, something like that, that I was going to go ahead and take, be proactive about it. Because like you said, I'd rather have somebody be mad at me, even if they're mad forever, <laughs> the whole rest of the time I'm on the department and be wrong, then to go ahead and not have taken any action and be potentially, you know, and then they wind up taking their lives. And then you knew that, that you didn't press forward. And and so, you know, it, that's a hard thing to live with too. I know, I know that my, uh, that, that John's best friend, he left the, he left the fire EMS service for a while because he was so guilt ridden because he felt that he knew that he was in trouble, but didn't have the tools to go ahead and necessarily handle that. And so thankfully he's in a better place now, uh, as far as emotionally, and he's back in the EMS service and doing well. And he and I are very, very good friends. But anyway, so we were on a call after John had went ahead and, and taken his life. We were on a call. We got a we got a mutual aid call to a neighboring, a very small neighboring community. Ironically enough, for um, they ran out of oxygen during a full arrest in a in an elderly person's home in a chronic care facility. We ran over there. We I had a, a partner with me that day. We rode in twos uh, in rescue trucks. And uh, this kid was pretty new to me. He was uh, pretty young. He, uh, he had been in the army, so we kind of shared that kind of veteran thing. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, kind of, I, I could tell he kind of looked up to me and such. And so we always had a good time when we when we worked together. We went to this and I said, now, have you ever done CPR on anybody yet? And he said, no. And I said, all right, you're probably gonna have to do CPR. And I said, remember, she's elderly. And sometimes, you know, if you take that first push, you hear the crunch of the ribs. I said, so her chest plate is probably floating around. We still have to do CPR. Okay, so get in there, get the oxygen set up. He took over CPR and his first push, he looked at me because, you know, it's like feeling jello in those elderly people when, they're, when their chest plate breaks, then that first push. And so he looked at me in horror 
before and I said, keep going. This is what we got to do. We got to squeeze that heart and give her her best chance. She can recover from broken ribs. And so he did and she wound up passing. And so the rest of the day, he was kind of quiet, which is very unusual for this individual. He was a chatterbox. He was hyperactive. He uh, he was a workout fanatic. And so, you know, I'm kind of like, well, I said, I said, you okay after that? Yeah, I'm okay. And I knew that he probably didn't seem okay. So I reached out. He was actually on another department too at the time. And I called, I knew the chief of the other department. And I said, hey, we got this guy here. He's pretty new. He was my partner today, kind of did CPR for the first time. And I said, you know, he doesn't seem like himself. I said, he's certainly, if you know him, he's very exuberant. And I said, he's, this definitely affected him. I don't know him very well. And I, I know you guys know him better than I do. Check on him for me. You know, make sure that he's okay. He's like, oh yeah, no problem. I said, and you don't have to mention that I called about this too. You know, he goes, oh yeah, no problem. So then uh, we're on shift a couple weeks later. I think it was the next week, actually. He's like, hey, man. He gave me a big hug. And I said, what's up, man? And he's like, uh, I just wanted to say, hey, thanks for looking out for me. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, my chief told me you called him. I'm like, oh, great. I told him not to do that. <laughs> he goes, no, he goes, I was a little bit off. And he says, you know, I was kind of bummed out by it. He says, but what you didn't know is the night before in my other department, we responded to a, to a suicide. This gentleman walked into a pawn shop, asked to see this gun. He had two uh, 12-gauge slugs in his uh, pocket. As soon as he reached down for the gun, he opened it up, loaded it, and, and blew his head off right oh, there at man. the store. And he says, that was my first suicide. I've never seen blood and guts and brains all over the place. So he says, I was just coming off that the night before and then this the next day. Wow. He says, I was fine. He says, yeah, I was a little bit off. He says, but I wasn't contemplating anything. But he says, you know what? He says, it really means a lot to me that you reached out and, and cared enough to just to make sure. That's what I'm talking about, Don. It can be a domino effect, right? You don't yep. know what somebody's going through. You don't know what their triggers are. You thought it was just the one thing with the elderly lady and the CPR. You had no idea that the night before he saw a suicide that was probably his main trigger. You reaching out to his supervisor on the other department, you had no idea. But man, it's just little things like that. You know, just a little, little bit of effort that it takes from somebody that sees something and just kind of that kid's a little bit different than he usually is. That's all it takes, man. That's awesome. That's a great story. I really appreciate that, Don. That's awesome. And yeah, now, happy now to the, do it. Now, now that kid's, you know, probably doing a great and, you know, healthy career. And, you know, maybe oh, now he he's a sign, so. Yeah, he didn't have any kids at the time. And I, I, I still keep in touch with him. And he's on a, uh, a big city fire department now. And uh, he's also a medic and he's doing great. He's, uh, yeah, just doing wonderful. So just proud of him. That's awesome. Good stuff, Don. I really appreciate that. With this episode, you know, it's good that we talk about things that are very deep, like the suicide and all these other stories, because they're very important, obviously. But I also like to finish up with a little bit lighter stuff with something I call war stories. I give my guests a little bit of opportunity. And obviously, you've been on for 27 years, so you have to have several war stories. So I'd like to give you the opportunity to just give a little bit of a tidbit of a war story, maybe something you've been on, a scene, maybe a call, something funny happened uh, that you can recall. Do you have something for us, Don? <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of them. But the one I can think of is uh, anybody who knows me, like knows I kind of have a fascination with aliens. And uh, I've driven the extraterrestrial highway many times. I look at the skies pretty much any night and that kind of stuff. So, and we celebrate in all my jobs that I go to. There's on March 20th of every year is International Alien Abduction Day. And so I tell all my friends and family, if they don't want to get probed and have a sore <laughs> bum the next day to make sure that they put on their tinfoil hats. So I carried, I had my tinfoil in my pocket that day because I was actually on shift and on one of the fire departments that I'm now retired from. I carry an extra one too. And we got a call to somebody who is a, an elderly person in seizure. So we walked 
walk up to the door, me and my partner, and my partner totally knows, is like, you know, about this whole alien abduction day thing and all this, and totally giving me crap about it. So we knock on the door, and this guy that looks like the professor from Back to the Future, he's got a hat on, white hair out the sides. My wife's crazy, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, who had a seizure, sir? Well, nobody. She's crazy. I just need you to take her away. It's like, well, that's not really how it works. And so um, I said, you know, can we come in and, and make sure she's okay medically? Yeah, you better come in. We kind of sequestered him off to the side because he was causing problems. And here was this nice lady. She's putting these metallic stickers uh, on this wall. Now, this wall is about, you know, 10 feet long and whatever the standard wall is, eight feet high, whatever kind of thing. Right. And about half of this wall was covered in these little tiny metallic stickers, smiley faces, stars, planets, alien, little alien guys, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, ma'am, I said, how are you doing today? She wouldn't speak. Trying to go ahead and figure out how to get your patient to talk to you is an important thing. So I said, ma'am, do you know what day is it is today? She's like, she stopped for a second. She goes, no, I said, it's International Alien Abduction Day. And my partner, you can see my partner rolling his eyes like, no, dude, don't go there. She's already got problems. And she goes, oh, and she goes, well, I don't want to get taken. I said, well, you know what, ma'am? I said, I've got my tinfoil hat in my pocket and I've got an extra one. I said, would you like it? And she's like, yes, please. And she goes, will you put yours on too? And so I put mine on. I gave it to her. She fashioned to her head. And then I said, what's going on today? Oh, I don't know. My husband's just been a real pain and things have been really difficult. And so I wind up getting a history from her with our tinfoil hats on. And my partner is just going to look at me like, how in the hell did you do that? You know, and there again, maybe not the most if people listening to this who don't know, understand <laughs> what we do things. This is not going to sound very ethical. Right. But, but it worked. I did understand. It worked. I understood right. that it was probably going to work on her. Yes. And I got to put my tinfoil hat on at work yes. and help somebody out on International Alien Abduction Day, that March is, 20th of every year. That is. Hey, if it works, it works. Right. Whatever works. Absolutely. That is awesome. Yep. That's a great story, Don. I appreciate that. That made my day. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, listen, this has been amazing. I really appreciate your time. Uh, some great stories, very personal stories. I really appreciate everything you've done for me here today, Don. We're going to wrap this up. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day. I know how busy you are. appreciate you joining me here on Always Responding as my very first guest. So this is kind of a, a special moment as well, Don. So I appreciate that. It's an absolute honor. Thank you so much for considering having me on. I just, hopefully this helps somebody. And I know that your podcast is going to help many as it, as it progresses. So thank you so much for doing what you do. And hopefully um, I'll have you on again sometime. Anytime. All right. Thank you for your time. I hope as a uh, first responder, this podcast will pique your interest. If you have a hobby or an item that you'd like to be promoted on this podcast, I'd be happy to mention it. You can email me at alwaysresponding at gmail.com. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I hope this is the beginning of a great partnership, and I hope everyone has a long, safe, and healthy career. This is KB with Always Responding saying thank you, and remember, as they would always say on that 80s cop show, let's all be safe out there.